felt alone. Like I was trapped in a cold, dark room. In a world overwhelmed by darkness, how does one move into the light? It seemed as if I felt a ray of light. And it gave me the strength to break free. I will be the last to fall. Be metal and stay metal with consistency. Continually choosing to make choices for a better future. Fortitude. Having courage while overcoming obstacles. Grit. Perseverance of effort combined with passion while working towards being better today than you were yesterday. Once I broke free, I never intended on going back. But I had made a promise that if I ever found my way out, I would return to fight and liberate those still trapped inside. You're listening to the Metal Mentality Podcast. Now, here's your host, Preston Ewell. Oh, man. Welcome to another episode of Metal Mentality. I am your host, Preston Ewell. Today, I am joined... Ah, uh, man, I'm so excited for this. I'm I'm joined by Michael Sugru. Did I say that right? You did. Man, I'm so proud of myself. I've been like practicing that over and over again because people butcher my last name all the time. And, and I'm like, <laughs> it's not that hard, but I'm glad I got that right. But my, today my guest is, is Michael Sugru. Michael Sugru is a retired police officer with the Walnut Creek Police Department in California, which is up uh, near Oakland, correct? Yeah, it's about... 35 minutes from Oakland, San Francisco. Yeah. So it's in that, that area up there. And uh, previous to this too, he was also a, his retirement, he was also a captain in the United States Air Force. And he worked in counterterrorism with uh, the security forces there and keeping our country safe. And his story is, uh, like I was, I was saying earlier, it's, it's not unique. But what is unique about Michael is the fact that he's willing to share his story and be vulnerable with it because a lot of times I think that when we go through these difficult times, we feel like we're all alone. No one's going to understand us. Um, and Michael's here to break that stigma down and to tell you, you no, know, listen, like you're not, you're not alone. And I think there's, that says a lot about him. I think that says uh, it's, it's exactly what we're trying to do here on, on, on the metal mentality podcast is let you know that you're not alone. You're not the only one that's struggling. You're not the only one you're you're not unique and struggling there's somebody out there who can relate to what you're saying maybe they're not going through something exactly like what you're going through but they definitely will um by sharing these stories you're going to find something that you that will resonate with you that you can relate to and say okay oh yeah that makes a lot of sense so 
here we are today. You know, I'm, I'm Michael. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Uh, I can't complain one bit. My life, you know, despite everything, maybe things don't go always the way that we want them to. Um, but my, I'm truly blessed, and uh, I think that a lot of us, and I'm not unique either, but I think that that's a mentality that we should all try to adapt. Is despite everything we have going on, um, we're all truly blessed. I don't know. Would you agree with that statement, or am I just full of myself? No, I, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, the ironic thing is I didn't used to think that way. And I think it was the job I was in, but I was very negative and pessimistic. And I always found the worst in people and the worst in situations. Mm-hmm. And now I'm at a point in my life through my recovery where, I mean, I literally embrace each day and I find the positives in everything and, and just the beauty around us, the things that we take for granted. And it's just changed my entire outlook on life. But for so long, I mean, I look back and I almost feel like I wasted so many years of just being down and negative and, and like you said, pessimistic. Yeah, pessimism will kill more dreams than failure ever will. I'm a firm believer in that. And uh, you strike me as the type of person that every morning you wake up and you're like, I can't wait to win today. What's gonna, what am I going to win today? I don't know. Am, am I right? Do you look forward to each day? I do. You know, I have, I have a young daughter and um, I'm blessed to be a stay-at-home father now. I mean, that that is my calling. That is my job now. And so every day that I get with my daughter, I just wake up and I'm full of joy and happiness and excited for what the day is going to bring. It, with, I think that's a great mentality because if we're looking for the bad in life, we're going to find it. If we find a reason to be a victim, there's a million reasons every single day while you can be a victim. But if we choose to be proactive and find the good in life. Um, that's where we win. And winning is everything when it comes to mentality. We have to win our, our, our mindset. I, I absolutely agree. You know, I just attended a uh, program recently called Save a Warrior. And I've never been one for meditation, uh, but they actually taught a, it's called warrior meditation. And it's a technique that they use. And it actually allowed me to get in a meditative state and they strongly encourage that you meditate twice a day, uh, once in the morning and once at night. And I've really found that that's kind of opened things up and allowed me some peace and, and the ability to look at things in a more positive light. And for so long, I just discounted, honestly, meditation. I thought it was not for me. I thought it wasn't real and I can never get to that, that meditative state. And with the technique that they taught, there's actually three phases and it's the two phases just get you into the meditative state. And as first responders, veterans, military, I think we need those techniques that are specific to us that can work for us because we're different than the general public. I mean, we just are, you know, we're the same in that we're human and we have families and we have feelings, but our experiences, whether it be on the battlefield or on the streets, they've really shaped us. And they've caused us to have a real heightened sense of alertness and awareness. And because of that heightened sense of awareness and alertness, that prevents us from getting into that meditative state that I'm talking about. Man, <laughs> I, I, I used to think that meditation was a little bit, uh, let's call it woo-woo, you know? Yep. Like, eh, I don't know about that. Like, really? But um, since I started this podcast, back in December, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that there's a lot of credence to it and uh, I still haven't learned how to do this. So after this call, I'm gonna have to have a, a private conversation with you. You're gonna have to teach me how to do this because, uh, I definitely think it would benefit my life. And I think it, I think it helps with, um, 
our spirituality, our connection to our soul and uh, our help help us find our purpose in life and find that, that uh, uh, peace of mind that we're all looking for, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, everyone's different in their beliefs and their spirituality. And um, I kind of joke about it and tell people I'm a recovering Catholic. Um, I was raised (laughs) in in private Catholic schools my whole life. And, um, you know, as an altar boy and went to private Catholic schools and, very formal religion. But what I found now that in my current state of life that I find spirituality in nature. And so I go hiking almost every single day, um, just being around, whether it be a lake or the ocean or streams, that's where I find the true connection that I'm looking for. And what I call, you know, the higher being or the higher power. And it has nothing to do with religion, but it's just spirituality. And I truly find that in nature. And I never realized that until I started my recovery process. Um, I never looked at things that way. Like I said, I was just very, I guess, focused and narrow-minded, whereas now I'm a lot more open-minded on things that I'm willing to try or experience. I, I think that there, we, we all kind of grow up with these, uh, a, a pre-programmed thinking. A lot of it comes from our, our, the homer raised in the you know, religious or not religious and particularly what religion it is. And we think that that's the way we have to do things. Right. And, but I guess we're, we're brought up to be closed minded. And I think it's important to open our minds up to realize like there's other ways of thinking, other ways of doing things. And I know as, as I've, I've opened up my mind more uh, to other possibilities, uh, truly my life has been blessed and I've had a greater understanding of myself. And that's when I found my purpose, my calling in life and understanding uh, why I'm here and what I'm supposed to be doing is was by listening to other people's point of views and their perspectives from the ways that they were raised. Do you find that that's been true for you too, is as you've listened to other people? A- absolutely. You know, we're, we're often shaped by our biggest influencers, which are usually our parents or the adults that we grow up with. And those kind of tend to shape our outlooks and our views. And, um, you know, when I, I think even the military and the, the first responder world, whether you're a firefighter, a paramedic, a police officer, the fact that we go through these training academies and, um, you know, we're, we're almost shaped to believe certain things. And, and there's a reason for that because we have to believe that we're invincible and that we are unstoppable and that we can go into the most dangerous situations and not think twice about it. And that we're going to go in there and bring calm and control and bring order. And that's not reality. I mean, reality is that, you know, we do experience fear. And for me, I didn't realize what fear was until I almost died and I was almost killed on the job. And, you know, that happened more than once. But there was one particular incident that that just really changed my entire perspective. And interestingly enough, up until that point, I never thought about death or dying. Um, But after that incident happened, that's all I could think about constantly was the fact that I was going to die. And that's no way to live. I mean, that's an absolute miserable way to live. And, And that's how I lived for over four years. So let's not let's not hesitate any further. Why don't you? Tell us about this 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 moment uh, you, where you you almost died in the, what, this one story in particular, because I'm pretty sure I know what you're talking about, but I know our audience says this. Why don't you go ahead and tell us that story? Tell us about that. Well, basically, I was uh, at the time I was a patrol sergeant in the city of Walnut Creek, like you described, and it's outside the San Francisco Bay Area. 
And it was actually my second solo week of being a sergeant. I had just been promoted and it was our last week or last shift of the week. And it was the night before Christmas, the shift started. It was graveyard shift. And the shift was uneventful. It was pretty, uh, pretty quiet night, as you can expect the day after Christmas. And the swing shift team went home, the lieutenant went home. And so literally, I was the watch commander, the chief of police for the entire city. And I had four officers on duty at that time. Uh, we were about four hours from going off duty. And a little bit after three in the morning, the dispatcher got a call that there was a man and woman that was um, barricaded inside an apartment and there was a subject with a knife. And so myself and the units, we get there as quick as we can. I'm actually first on scene. And at that same time, one of my partners pulls up and I can just hear blood curling screams coming from a distance. And it is to this day, the worst sound that I've, I've ever heard in my life. And I didn't know exactly where this apartment or condominium was, but I could hear these screams. And so my partner and I just started running towards the screams. We eventually found the condominium. It was a two-story condominium with attached units on both sides. When we got in front of this unit, it went dead silent. It went from me hearing these blood-curling screams to just absolute eerie silence. Initially, I tried to kick open the door. It wasn't working. Uh, we then noticed that there was a huge window uh, the size of a door. It was a louvered window that had been smashed inside the apartment. We've got more units coming in, but we know that we have to get inside this apartment. So myself and my partner, we enter through this broken window. It takes us into the kitchen. We immediately clear the downstairs. Uh, there's no signs of a struggle. Um, it's dark. We don't see anybody. There's nothing obvious. We get to the bottom of the stairs and we know that we have to get up there at some point. So we've got our guns out. We're yelling, come out with your hands up. Let us see you. Repeated commands. Eventually, a male subject partially comes out of the opening at the top of the stairs. Uh, we initially can't see his right hand. We can only see his left arm and hand. He's sweating profusely. His eyes are just wide open. He looks like a zombie is the best way to describe it. He's just staring straight through us. Um, there is no visual reaction to any of the commands that we're giving. No facial expressions, no body movements, no eye movement, just staring straight through us. Eventually, he comes a little bit further out. And at that point, he takes the knife. It ends up being a butcher knife in his right hand. He raises it up over his head and starts coming down the stairs at us. My partner and I, we both discharge our firearms. By this point, there's two more officers inside the condo. Uh, one other officer discharges her firearm and another officer discharges his taser. The subject comes down to the bottom of the stairs. Uh, two of the officers retreat to the family room. At this point, we don't know if he's been injured. If we hit him, we can't tell anything. We just know that he's now at the bottom of the stairs. He's still clenching this butcher knife in his right hand. Uh, my partner and I, who had the taser, he now has his gun out. We're giving him commands to drop the knife, drop the knife. He eventually starts coming back up towards us. And at this point, we're literally only a few feet from him. I don't know, three feet, maybe four feet max from this subject with a butcher knife. And we, again, discharge our firearms. Um, there's no nice way to say it. Um, he was killed instantly. Um, turns out that the couple upstairs was barricaded inside the bedroom and he'd been stabbing through the bedroom door with his butcher knife. And literally the door was coming off the hinges. 
Had we not gotten there when we did, there's no doubt that these two people would have been killed by the subject. Absolutely no doubt. We eventually were able to get the people out of the condominium and we had to secure the scene. I started making notifications and that was the event. I eventually got relieved. I got brought back to my police department and that's where they start the process. Um, they start the process of taking your uniform, your gun belt, your gun, taking photographs. You get separated. Um, it was several hours. Eventually, I get interviewed. And that really started the nightmare for me. Um, you know, the incident itself, extremely traumatic. Like I said, I almost died. My partners almost died. Thank God we saved the couple in the bedroom. Thank God none of our officers were hurt. It turns out that this subject was actually a roommate that lived in the condominium. And to this day, we don't know why he did what he did. Um, it would be nice if this person was, you know, a repeat felony offender, um, a serial rapist, somebody with an extensive criminal history, uh, a gang member. But that was not the case in this scenario. Um, we don't know if he had a mental break, if it was psychosis induced by drugs. Um, to this day, after several years of investigation, of going through a federal lawsuit to this day, we still don't know why he did what he did. And that's part of the reason why it caused so much trauma for me is that for all intents and purposes, this was a good young man with no criminal history that had never had any issues whatsoever. No history of mental issues, no contact with police officers, not even any issues with his roommates. But for some reason that night, just before we got the 911 call, he went into the couple's bedroom, jumped on the bed and started trying to strangle the male roommate to death. Somehow, by the grace of God, the boyfriend and girlfriend were able to wrestle the subject out of the condo, lock the door downstairs, run up to the bedroom and barricade themselves and call 911. The suspect then broke through the window and we're assuming grabbed a butcher knife from the kitchen and went straight back up to that bedroom. Now, just telling that story, it's traumatic, but it took years before I could just talk about that story without breaking down and without losing it. And after that incident happened, what I did, though, is that I shut down completely. I didn't talk about the incident with my wife at the time. Um, I couldn't talk to other people because there is ongoing investigations. We we're immediately sued federally. And so really, there's nobody I could talk to. I could have gone to a therapist and I did one time, but I believe that wasn't for me. I believed, you know what? I'm fine. This is just our job. This is what we do. I'm going to go back to work as soon as I can and pretend like everything's okay. And I did that. I went to back to work in a matter, I think it was like two weeks I was back at work. And, you know, at home, I was shutting myself off. I was isolating. I was sleeping as much as I, I could. I was starting to drink more, um, drinking wine almost every single night, just trying to put myself to sleep. I was having constant nightmares. I didn't want to be social. Um, I avoided my friends and family. And my marriage started falling apart. Um, eventually, I lost my marriage. Um, this lawsuit went on for four years, four years of depositions where I had to relive this incident time and time and time again. Eventually, I was defendant in federal court for two weeks in San Francisco. We did end up winning the trial. 
And I, in the trial, it, it didn't go till September of 2016. My shooting happened December 27, 2012. That's how long it took for me to go to a federal trial. Now, what I didn't tell you is that the person who I killed had an identical twin brother. And he was at the trial every single day. And I had to see the person that literally tried to kill me and kill my partners while I was in court. I mean, it's unimaginable. And going through the court process, hearing all these crazy expert witnesses who were second guessing our actions and what we did, they called us cold blooded murderers. That took an absolute toll on me. I went from being sure of what I did was right to starting to second guess myself and to question, was there something I could have done differently? And I started doubting myself. And instead of things getting better after that trial, I just nosedived. I mean, things got so much worse. At work, I was putting my officer safety aside. I was purposely putting myself in dangerous situations, hoping that I died on duty. Because if I died on duty, I'd be a hero. And that's sad when you think about it. But my biggest fear at the time was that my daughter was never going to remember me. I was losing my marriage. I was disgraced. And all I could think about was that, you know what, if I died at work, if I died on duty, I'm a hero. People are going to remember me. There's going to be a statue erected with my name on it. You know, if I put my hand up and ask for help, that's weakness. Um, at least that's what I thought it was at the time. Fast forward to November after that September, my best friend, he's a Vietnam veteran. He was an army private in Vietnam, worked in a military prison. He eventually became a reserve officer in my department, worked for 35 years. He was my best friend, my partner. He tried to kill himself when I was on duty. I was the on-duty sergeant, and he literally cut both wrists, stabbed himself in the torso, OD'd on several prescription medications. And I saw him right before they rushed him into emergency surgery, and I thought he was going to die. Thank God he's alive today, but he saved my life absolutely saved my life. Um, a month after that is when I finally mustered the courage and the strength and the bravery to ask for help. And I did. And that's the reason why I'm here today is because I had the courage to ask for help. And I'm so thankful that I did that. And that, that's one of the most intense stories I've, I've probably ever heard. I mean, wow. So, you talk about like this is a traumatic event for you, like, <clears throat> and and you didn't want to talk about it for a long time. You think, oh, I'll just suck it up. You know, I'm brave, I'm strong, I'm gonna put on the tough guy attitude, you know. But that you ended up putting yourself in danger and your officers' lives in danger um, because of all of this. What did you do that allowed you uh, to change your mentality to to be where you're at now to be able to talk about this? Uh, in a way to that is is helping other people. It's years of work. Uh, when I initially asked for help, I started therapy right away. I got a great therapist, and she's culturally competent. That's absolutely key. Is all she does is work with first responders, firefighters, dispatchers, paramedics, and police officers. So she understands the culture. She gets it. Um, she told me about this program called the West Coast post-trauma retreat. I eventually ended up going there as a client. It's a week-long residential retreat open to first responders. I went there in May of 2017. And that program 
absolutely changed my life. It, it, it made me realize that I was not alone. It made me realize that there were so many other people that were just like me and that I wasn't unique. I wasn't special, but there was a lot of brothers and sisters who had experienced the same thoughts, the same feelings and had been exposed to years and years of just trauma and negativity on the job. I also started going to first responder support group meetings. And those are meetings that are 100% confidential. They have them all over the United States. Um, they're about an hour long once a week. And it's only open to first responders. And it's a discussion meeting. And again, I found out that guess what? I'm not alone. There's other people just like me. And that was so key to my recovery, to my healing, is knowing that I had people I could trust, that I could fully open up to, and that I could go to and just be myself. Because the problem is, as an Air Force captain and a police sergeant, I can never be myself. I was always putting up a front. I was always putting up this just image of something that I wasn't. I'm a human being. I'm a father. You know, I'm a brother. And I have feelings. I have emotions. But for so many years, I denied those feelings. I denied those emotions. And I just stuffed them away. And all this exposure, just years and years and years of trauma, eventually took a toll on me. And the way I can best describe it, it's like a, it's like a jar. You know, when you start your career, whether it's in the military or as a first responder, it's not completely empty. There's some things in there, usually from your childhood, from growing up. But as you go through your career, this jar just keeps building and building and building until eventually it overflows. And that's the problem is that I should have been addressing this as it was building up, but I didn't. I waited till it overflowed and it was almost too late. And so by going through these programs and years of therapy, and I still go to therapy today, and now I go back and I volunteer at the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat as a peer. I volunteer a week at a time. Um, I also actually just went through another program called Save a Warrior. And the beautiful thing about Save a Warrior is that it's open to active military. It's open to veterans. It's open to current first responders, past first responders. And it's a free program. It's all funded by donations. And even though I had done years of therapy, and I literally just attended this program a couple weeks ago, it was like the missing piece that I needed for my recovery. I didn't even realize it. The program was absolutely earth-shattering, groundbreaking, life-changing, and life-saving. And I can't speak enough about these two programs. They have made an absolute difference in my life. And that's the reason why now what I do is, is I travel across the country to different agencies, police departments. I speak for the VA. Next month, I'm speaking to the California National Guard in Sacramento is to let them know that A, you're not alone, B, there are resources, and that, that there is hope and help out there. And you can get through this. I strongly advocate that it's not PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. That's what's in the DSM, that's what psychologists and therapists use, that's what insurance companies use, but it's PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury. It's been proven, it's been shown that there's an actual change to the brain, a physical change to the brain as a result of exposure to trauma. Hence, 
the term injury, which is what I had. When you use the term injury, that changes the stigma. That changes the fact of people hearing disorder and not wanting to ask for help. It's no different than an officer. Oftentimes they have back injuries, they have shoulder injuries, they have knee injuries. And most officers or firefighters or veterans, they have no problem eventually getting help for those physical injuries. They just don't. They're in pain. And they say, you know what? I can't take this pain anymore. So I'm going to call workers comp and I'm going to get this taken care of. Well, it's the same thing for PTSI. Same thing. It's injury. You can get better. I am living proof of that. I absolutely believe you can get better. I will never be the same person I was before post-traumatic stress injury, but I can even go a step further and say, I won't be the same person I was before my military career or before my career as a police officer. But what I can tell you is that I'm an even better person now. I'm a person who is open-minded. I look at things differently. Um, I show my emotions. I express my emotions. Um, I'll just give you a perfect example. When I was a police officer, and I was also an undercover narcotics agent on a state drug task force. I looked at if you were using drugs or you had drugs, that you were the scum of the earth, you're a criminal, and you needed to go to jail or you needed to go to prison. And that's how I looked at it. What I didn't realize is that most of those people that are using, whether it be alcohol or drugs or other things, it's because they have post-traumatic stress injury. It's because they've been exposed to trauma. It's because of what's going on in their life. And they're trying to self-medicate. They're trying to numb themselves. And so I look at things differently in that respect that we're all human. We all go through things. And at some point, we're all going to need help. Man, there, there's so many nuggets in there. I, I, <laughs> I want to go back to one thing that really stuck out to me. You talked about not opening up and not expressing your emotions and not telling anybody about what you were going through and what you were dealing with. And the thought that came to my mind is that when we do this, and I say this coming from my own experience of going through addiction recovery, but when we don't communicate, we don't open up, we don't talk about the pain and suffering that we're feeling, uh, we're, we, we shut it down, right? Because we don't want to deal with it. We think, act like we can compartmentalize it and it's a separate part of our life. Uh, when we do that, we're, what we're really doing is denying uh, ourselves the right to live the human experience. All of these things that we, we uh, experience in life, uh, if we don't accept them and acknowledge them for what they are, we don't communicate and we act like they didn't happen. We're just depriving ourselves of that right to be human. And I correct me if I'm wrong, but that that's kind of what led you down this, this path of, of reckless behavior and putting yourself in danger and others lives in, in danger was not allowing yourself to be human. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And there's actually an incident that reinforced that, which I didn't discuss. And it was absolutely pivotal to me not asking for help, for not ever expressing my emotions again. And it was an instance that forever changed me. And it was a pivotal point where if it would have gone a different way and they would have offered help to me, I'd probably still be working today. Well, can you share that with us? I absolutely can. And the reason why I'm going to share this, it's not to talk bad about my agency or anybody in particular, because I, I worked for an outstanding agency with outstanding people. But a big component of post-traumatic stress injury is called administrative betrayal. And that applies to whether you're in the military or whether you're in the civilian world and you're a first responder. 
What had happened was, is five months after my shooting incident that I had talked about previously, in our county, we have what's called a coroner's inquest. And this is where it's held in a courtroom. There's a judge there. There's a full jury. It's open to the public. In this case, there was reporters there. Uh, my wife at the time was there. Probably at least 20 people from my police department, as well as the family members of the suspect that I killed. All in this courtroom. At the start of that, they played the dispatch tapes from that, that night. And that immediately brought me back to that incident. Immediately. I started getting tunnel vision. Hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. I was sweating. Eventually, I get on the stand and I have to talk about what happened. And this was the first time I talked about, I mean, this incident other than with my therapist or attorneys. And here I am in a courtroom with probably 60 or 70 people with a jury less than three feet away from me. And so when I talk about this incident, I broke down and bawled and started crying like a little baby in front of all these people. And I've never cried like that in my whole entire life, not in front of anybody. Eventually, the judge thanked me and excused me and said, hey, Sergeant, we have what you need. You're excused. I left the courtroom for literally just a few minutes to get my stuff together because I was embarrassed. I was ashamed that I just cried in front of all these people. So I went to the restroom. I splashed some water on my face, pulled myself together, shook it off and got back to the courtroom. We ended up going through the proceedings. The other officers testified. Two weeks after that, we ended up getting the finding that we wanted. So I, here I am, you know, you got to remember, I'm a brand new sergeant. I've been involved in a fatal shooting where we saved a couple's life. We were all cleared immediately in the, the DA's investigation. It was a good shooting. We went to the coroner's inquest. We got the finding we wanted. And so I got called into an administrator's office and there was a captain, lieutenant. And I literally thought they were going to call me in and say, hey, sergeant, outstanding job you know, great leadership, this and that. Well, the exact opposite happened. And this changed my life and my outlook forever. In that room, a couple things happened. The first thing that happened was the genuineness of my emotions got questioned. Yeah, that I said that right. They questioned whether or not I was acting or making a show for the jury, questioning whether or not I was really crying and really upset. That was the first thing that happened. So you can imagine that me, here I am, former Air Force captain, police sergeant. I've never cried in front of anybody. And I did, and I didn't want to. It just happened. And now my integrity is being questioned. Second to that is my leadership ability got called into question. And eventually, my probationary status as a sergeant was extended, which I'd never heard of before. Up to this point, not to brag, my career was off the charts. It was absolutely stellar. I mean, absolutely stellar. I'd gotten the assignments I wanted, promoted quicker than anybody. I was seeing bars and stars. I thought for sure one day I was going to be chief of police. That was my goal back then. It certainly isn't now. But because of that incident, five months after my shooting, I never again cried in front of anybody. I stuffed my emotions inside. I became an asshole at work. I became unapproachable. I became unsympathetic. I didn't care. When people came to me with their minor problems, which I thought were minor problems, I thought to myself that they did not compare to anything I was going through. 
But instead of taking care of them, I became an asshole. And it worked for a while. I put up a good front. Nobody had any idea that I was suffering. Nobody had any idea that my life was absolutely falling apart. No clue. That moment right there changed my life. If they would have then said, you know what, Sergeant, we want to get you some help. Maybe you should go to this program or we're going to have you talk to this person. I would still be working today. I have no doubt. But because that didn't happen, that put me on a path of destruction. And that's why I talk about that. Because if there's anybody out there listening who's a supervisor, an administrator, you have the power to make the absolute difference. And you can, it isn't just about saving careers. I'm talking about saving lives, saving your people's lives. Okay. All right. When you tell me about, your integrity being questioned for expressing your emotion. I think my heart rate jumped from about 60 to 120 beats per minute. Like that pisses me off that this stereotype of toughness and uh, real men, right? We don't express our emotions and that we're not, we shouldn't be vulnerable and we should just, we shouldn't express that. Uh, that's what strength is like that pisses me off more than almost anything that like one i'm sorry that happened to you and and the word that i wrote down i'll show you this right here if you can see this right here i wrote down bullshit because that's what that is when we criticize other people and question their integrity for expressing their emotions um one that says a lot about you as a person you're you're not a good person if you do that. I'm just going to leave it at that. But to think, that, man, I tell you, I, I, I stuffed my emotions for years. I was afraid to express my emotions because as a kid, whenever I, I would express my emotions and if it, it came across um, as uh, anything other than a uh, tough guy, uh, I was criticized. I was bullied. I was made fun of and I was teased. And, and what I realized is it actually takes strength. The strongest people express their emotions. The strongest people ask for help. And if you ask for help or you're expressing, you're telling a story and you're sharing, relating an experience or retelling that experience, and that makes you emotional and you're willing to be vulnerable like that, that's where strength is found. Not in stuffing it. Stuffing it is not being genuine, not being an authentic person. So that makes me livid that that, that happened to you, man. Like that utterly pisses me off that somebody would do that and criticize your integrity. Complete bullshit is what that is. That's, there's, I don't have any other words to, to express the way that I feel. It makes me angry. We, and I think that's important that we talk about this and, and we thank you so much for sharing that because I think people need to hear this and they need to understand that asking for help and expressing your emotions is not a sign of weakness. What it is is it's you allowing yourself to be human, which sometimes takes strength and courage that is not valued in our society. I would agree 100%. And, you know, the thing is, I didn't believe that before. And that's the sad truth is that, you know, most of us, like you said, it's how we're raised. It's how we're brought up as young men, especially young boys. You have to be tough. You don't show emotions. 
I mean, that's how our society and our culture says that we should be. And because of that, you know, it's considered a sign of weakness. But as I mentioned earlier, me asking for help to this day, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. It's the most courageous thing I've ever done. Not running into an apartment with a guy with a butcher knife that was trying to kill a couple, not on any of the other hundreds of calls that I was on as a, as a police officer, police sergeant, or, you know, my service in the military. It was me asking for help was the most courageous thing I have ever done in my life. I would agree and, with you on that. A hundred percent. The bravest thing I ever witnessed in my entire life was, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get emotional as I tell you this because it changed my life. And it's set me on the path that we're having this conversation now. A little over three years ago, one of the soldiers in my platoon came to me. I call him my soldier because if you serve with me, you're my soldier because I'm a leader. Whether I'm directly over you or not, you're my soldier. If you serve with me, you're my soldier. Well, this kid came to me and he told me that, um, that in the past three months, and in the past three months, he, he attempted to take his life three times. Hmm. And he said it so nonchalantly. It was as if uh, we're like, hey, I started a new job. Uh, and, I, and it's been tough. Like, that was it. And in the moment, I didn't realize, like, what he was saying, what he was asking for, what he was doing. Uh, in hindsight, I realized that that was a plea for help. And that I may have been the last person he asked for help before he made sure that he didn't ever have to have this conversation again. And in that moment, my life changed. I didn't know how to help him, but I knew that I, he needed to know that he mattered. They need to know that he was loved. So I, I, that's what I did. I just loved him unconditionally for who he was. Three years later, he's doing much better. He's family. My kids call him uncle. He's my brother. My parents call him son. He's family. We brought him into our family. And I'm so grateful that he came to me because it, had he not, and I found out a month later or however long later that he was gone, I, I would have hurt. I, don't, I would have been really difficult to deal with. And so the reason why I tell that is that was the bravest thing I ever saw anybody ever do. That's as brave as running into a fire to save someone. It's, it's as brave as running into a dangerous situation where you know you could be shot or blown up. Uh, for those, the, when you're in that situation, it takes that amount of courage to ask for help. It's the same as putting yourself in, in danger. And I think if you're listening to this, I want you to understand and know that like, have that courage to ask for help. And if the person you talk to doesn't give you feedback that you're looking for, try again. Don't give up. Keep trying. There's, you will find someone who cares that will help you get the need that give you that help and that support and that validation that you need. There is somebody out there who understands what you're going through and is willing to help you. We are not alone in our suffering. There are millions of people out there who understand what you're going through on some level and they, they have empathy for you and they want to help you. We just have to have the courage to ask for it. And so I commend you for asking for that help because when you say that that was the most courageous thing that you ever did. Yeah, I agree. That was the most courageous thing you ever did. That's more brave, take more courage than going in 
and and uh, helping this couple that were barricaded in the bedroom, in my opinion. I agree 100 percent. And that's that's why we're here today is that we got to change the change the culture. We got to change the stigma. Um, you know, I haven't talked about this yet directly, but the sad facts are that as a military member or a first responder, you are much more likely to die by your own hands than the hands of another. Period. Much more likely to die by your own hands than the hands of another. That is reality. That's the truth. And we need to change that. That's why I do what I do. Because there is hope. There is help. And we have to stop this suicide epidemic among first responders and active military and veterans. We need to do so much more. And part of that is just letting people know that they're not alone and that it's normal to have these types of feelings and that, like you said, you need love. Love is what allows people to get better and to find hope. And whether that be through a coworker, a peer, a family member, a therapist, a clinician, uh, a clergy member, whatever the case may be, reach out to somebody that you feel comfortable with, that you trust, that loves you. Because if they love you and they truly love you, they're going to understand, they're going to accept, and they're going to want to do everything they can to help you. Everything they can to help you. Absolutely. And that I say this in it, and I hope this doesn't come across as me being cocky, but in a humble way, when this, this soldier came to me, um, I cared about him already because he was my brother in arms. But in that moment, I decided to love him unconditionally. There is somebody else willing to do that for you. And you may not have that close of a connection with, but I promise you there is somebody else out there who is willing to love you and save your life. There's somebody else out there who will do whatever it takes. I promise you there's somebody out there. Don't give up. Don't think that the first time is how it, if you get rejected or you don't get that response that you're looking for that everyone else is going to be that way, that nobody cares about you and that you're all alone. There's somebody else out there. I promise. I promise you. Me, if you are struggling, email me. Like you, My information is all over the website, mentalmentality.org. You can email me, Preston, at mentalmentality.org, and I'll do everything I can to help you. And even if that means taking a phone call at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm willing to do that because, because I care about every single one of you that listen to the show. And I care about everyone that I interview on the show. And I would do anything for you, Michael. And I do anything for anyone who asks for help. Um, because that's where I, that's where I find my joy and my happiness is in helping other people. And there are other people out there like that. I'm not unique. I'm not special. There are millions of people out there willing to do the same thing for you. Um, my daughter, who's supposed to be in bed right now, is listening to this interview. And she slipped, handed me a list of questions she wants me to ask you. And one of these questions, I, I am impressed with, to say the least. She wants to know, and I want to know, and I think our audience wants to know, what have you learned from these traumatic experiences? What is your big takeaway? 
That's kind of a broad question, but what I can tell you is that my reaction to them is normal and human. Um, traumatic incidents, the general public, they may have one in their entire lifetime as military and especially first responders. We may experience hundreds, if not thousands in our 30 year career. And so when you're exposed to this trauma, you need to address it as it's happening. Whether that means when things are safe to do so and things have gotten under control, take a step back and you need to care for yourself. You need to stick up for yourself. Um, if you're, you know, as, as police officers, we're often sent from call to call to call to call to call. And sometimes you have to say, hey, look, I need 10 minutes. I need 15 minutes. Or, hey, can we go over here and can we talk about this? Can we talk about what just happened, about what I just saw? Because you need to normalize the fact that it's normal what you're feeling. It's normal for a person to have emotion and to have certain feelings after being exposed to trauma or traumatic incidents. It's normal. And we're not invincible. We're not superhuman as much as we want to be. So we need to address the fact that we are human and to value that. But trauma also has, for me, it's been an absolute blessing because had it not been for my trauma and my traumatic experiences, I don't think I'd be the father that I am today. I just don't think I would. I think I'd be too focused on my career, focused on promoting and all of my priorities in life have changed. I'm not worried about promotion. I'm not worried about a career. I'm retired. Everything I do is volunteer. My number one priority is my daughter and being a good father to her. And so that's taught me that that's more important. That's my legacy. My legacy is what I leave to my daughter. It's not what I leave to a police department or to the United States Air Force. That is not important. What is important is the legacy you live, leave to your family, your friends, and your loved ones. That's what's important. I 100% I agree with you. Uh, it is, is my, my number one priority, my number one purpose in life is to teach my kids, one, to love their God and to love their brothers and sisters that live on this earth the way that they love him. And number two is to teach them how to be successful and how to be resilient, how to overcome hardship and suffering and to understand that it is through these difficult situations that our, our character is forged. And the hotter the fire is, the hotter the flame, the stronger the iron will become. The more your story sucks that you went through, the more the experience sucks that you're sharing when we say it that way, the greater help it's going to be to other people. It, that, that's where my, my priorities lie. It's not in a, how many people does this show reach or how long I serve in the military or how many whatever. What's important is the way that I teach them to live their life how I teach them to live their life. And that is done by example. And I'm far from perfecting this. I still have a long ways to go. I'm not in any way uh, the best example of this, but I'm doing the best that I can. And I hope that my children someday can look back and say, you know what? I hope my, I see that my dad did everything that he could to teach me how to live the best life possible. 
And if they can say that, then everything I did was, was a win. Absolutely. And you know, no one's perfect. I try to be perfect my whole life. I try to be perfect in my career and it's not possible. We're human. And the bottom line is that we do the best that we can at the time with what we have. That's life period mm -hmm. right there. And that changes through our life. But if you're doing right now, the best that you can with what you have, that's all you need to do. Absolutely. Just make the best of the situation. I think it's important too, that we realize that, um, the things that we feel like we fell at aren't don't define us and that failure is necessary for growth. And it's actually a fertilizer for us to become who we want to be. And I, I found that a quote um, from a, the book, Deliberate Discomfort. It was written by Jason Van Camp and talks about uh, why failure is necessary for us uh, to grow and become who we are supposed to be. What are you, what are your thoughts on failure? Do you, would you agree with that statement that failure is necessary for growth? I absolutely do agree with that. Um, you know, I even learned that on early in my career is that we get in our our comfort zone and we get good at things that we do, and we don't want to step outside our our comfort zone because we're scared and we have fear of what may or may not happen, and we're scared of failure, like you're talking about, and that fear of failure prevents you from being successful prevents you from living life. Um, if you're always living in fear of failure, then you're going to be stuck. And so you have to push out of your comfort zone and do things that aren't comfortable at first. And that's where I think you're going to find your true calling. Um, I don't enjoy speaking in front of people. I get super nervous every time I do it. I always want to back out of it right before but I do it. And after I do it, I'm glad that I did it. But at the same time, I'm super self-critical. I'm super worried about how I did or how I was perceived or how it came across. But like you said, what I've realized is that all that matters is, is that if you touched one person in that entire audience yep. or one person with each podcast that you do, it doesn't matter, you know, if thousands of people listen to it. It just matters that that one person that needed to listen to it actually did. And, and that's all that matters. And if you or I in what we're doing and, and getting this message out there, if we literally just save one person, that's all that matters. That's it. I, I've literally said that time and time again. If this podcast in general or this interview or what I am trying to do helps one person continue fighting every hour, every dollar, every minute of time and effort I put into this is completely worth it. And I don't even need to know from the person that, Hey, because of this, you help me. I don't even need to know because I know th that there's someone out there that it's helping and it's worth every little bit of it because eventually It'll pay for itself. Karma is going to come back around and, and it's going to reward you for the good that you're doing in life. It's you're that just living a, a good life where you're always striving to be the best person and bless the lives of other people. It, it pays itself in tenfold just by living that way. And it's not even in monetary value. 
you just you're a happier person when you live that way. When when you open up and you're vulnerable and you share the things that you've been through that you struggle with that are scary to share, and and quit worrying about what other people think about you when you're just being authentic. It's in those moments that you you're you're liberated. You're 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 no longer captive to what other people think about you. You're no longer living your life for the moment or living to to create a perception. You're just accepting yourself. And that's the enough of a reward in itself, I think. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It and it's scary. It scares the shit out of me doing that. To get to the point where I can open up and talk about everything that I've been through. That didn't happen when I even when I first started this podcast. It happened further down the road when I realized I need to do this. And the moment when I opened up and I shared and I said, you know what? I struggled with an addiction to pornography for 17 years. I was liberated. Like I quit caring what people think about me. My entire life I have lived trying to hide something that I was so ashamed of because I thought people wouldn't understand. And you know what? It don't it doesn't matter if people understand me or not. The fact is that I'm living my life for myself. And I see you're doing the same thing that you're opening up and you're talking about these things that are difficult. It, has it been liberating for you as well? I can't even explain how liberating it's been. I mean, even just the first time that I, I did a first interview, I literally was harassed by this guy. And I say that jokingly, but he asked me for over a year to, to do it. And finally, I did it. And I'm so glad that, that he, he kept bugging me, basically, because it lifted this just huge burden off my shoulders of shame because I just put it all out there. And once it's out there, it's out there. And I didn't care what people thought. I lived my whole life worried about what people thought and what their perception of me was. And I just got to the point where I'm like, you know what? The good, the bad, the ugly, I'm going to put it out there because I made a lot of mistakes and I want people to learn from my mistakes and not make the same mistakes. I'm not out there saying, look at me, look at this great stuff I did. No, mm -hmm. I almost lost my life because I waited far too long to ask for help. And I lost my marriage because of it. That's the truth. And so I learned from that. And by just putting out there like you're talking about, there is nothing more liberating. And also realizing that you're not alone. You know, that's the bottom line is you're not alone. And you're just being human. You're being yourself. And people can see that. They know it. They know when you're being yourself. They know when you're being sincere. Mm -hmm. And it encourages them to do the same. And hopefully they do. Because we're all human. And that's what it comes down to. So I'm, I'm looking at this notebook my daughter gave me. I don't know if she wanted me to share this or not, but I'm going to because it's impactful. I don't know why she wrote this, but I think it's applicable. And I think the audience, if you're you're listening to this, I think you need to hear it. She's this, I'm sorry, man. I I gotta compose myself here. Um my daughter's incredible. She's one of the most compassionate, loving individuals I've ever met. And she um she generally cares about other people. I don't know why she wrote this, but I'm going to read it. She said, you matter. You are loved. You are you. I think that goes right in line with what we're talking about tonight. You matter. You're not alone. Someone else loves you. Love yourself for who you are. So I wish to thank her for putting this notebook in front of me. I don't think she did it on me sharing that. But uh, I think she may have been inspired to write that. And uh, I think that that's the big takeaway from this 
this entire interview with you. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I, I couldn't agree more. You know, it took me, what, almost 43 years to be myself. I mean, think about that. 43 years of not being myself to where now I finally am. And because of that, I have a whole new life. I have a second chance at life. So just be yourself. Embrace it. Yeah. It took me 35. I'm 35. And it wasn't until this year, 2020, the the year of chaos, <laughs> that I I decided to accept myself for who I was and um, stop living a life of self-betrayal. And yeah, you can look at it and make, oh, it's kind of embarrassing. It took me that long, but I guarantee you, I'm not the only one that is living a life of self-betrayal. And by living a life of self-betrayal is not accepting yourself for who you are. And you're putting on this front, trying to create a perception where you want other people to think of. You're betraying yourself by doing that. And I encourage everyone who's listening to this to just love yourself for who you are. The good, the bad, and the ugly, when you, when you accept all of it, and just understand like, yep, this is who I am. All these mistakes and these failures, they don't define me. Rather, they are the product of who I am. There, That's where you will begin to live for yourself and you'll, you'll find freedom. I'm telling you, it's like, it's like coming out of prison. And there, you can't do yourself, give yourself a better gift than to just love yourself for who you are. And it's scary, but most uncomfortable things we do will help us grow the most. Well, Michael, I, I don't know. I feel like this is a good stopping point, <laughs> but yeah, man, I think you so much for your willingness to come on here and share your story, share your experience and open up and be vulnerable at this and breaking down the stigma of, of all these things that we've talked about and just, uh, Loving yourself for who you are, it takes courage to do that. And uh, I commend you for it. And I know it's not an easy thing. And I think it's something that we undervalue in our society. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I want, before we go, I know that you have a fundraiser on your Facebook page for Save Your Warrior. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, like I said, Save a Warrior, phenomenal program. Uh, it starts on a Sunday, ends on a Thursday. And it's uh, it's it's not a retreat; it's an experience. But you're there with a fellow cohort. Usually, it's like ten to fourteen fellow veterans or first responders or active military. Uh, there's programs in Ohio and California, and the key part about this thing is it's a hundred percent free for you to go through this program. But it does cost money. It costs almost four thousand dollars per person to go through Save a Warrior. And Save a Warrior is completely funded by donations, 100%. And so I, first of all, encourage you to look into Save a Warrior. Just Google it. They also have a Facebook page. Um, there's drop-down buttons on the Facebook page where you can donate or you can apply. It literally takes five minutes to apply to Save a Warrior. And eventually somebody will call you and it goes from there. But what I can tell you is that even after two years of recovery and other programs, Save a Warrior did things for me that hadn't been done before, and it's absolutely changed my life. So I can't speak enough about it. Just please look into it, check into it. It costs you $0 to go there. They provide the housing, the food, and the entire experience. All you have to do is get yourself there. 
and that's it. I, I know that when we first connected and we had a our first conversation over the phone, you were on your way home from this this experience, and like I was excited about it. And like as we were talking, I pulled jumped on my computer and I pulled up and I read about it. And I was like, wow, this is something I can get behind. You don't have to have been gone through something traumatic such as you have, or you don't have to be blown up by an IED or some serious traumatic event. It could be some trauma from your childhood um, that's okay. impeding you from becoming the best version of yourself. And that's that's what was my big takeaway from this company is that they help you get over the experiences and the traumatic uh, experiences too that you've had that are preventing you from becoming the best version of yourself. So I encourage you to check that out. And if you can, please donate. And if you feel like it would be a benefit to you, apply. And there will be a link in the show notes for this down at the down in there. Check it out. And uh, in any way you, you feel like you can be a part of this program, I highly encourage it. Awesome. Uh, it'll be great. Well, well, Michael, um, thank you so much again for your time. This has been a tremendous experience for me um, getting to talk with you and connect with you and, and hear your story uh, and open up about some of my myself a little bit with you. I can't thank you enough. And uh, I can't wait to work with you more on other things in the future because I have the feeling that this is only the beginning of uh, changing lives that we do changing lives together. So thank you. Absolutely. I can't wait. Thanks for having me.